Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Peter Groves. <laughs> Peter Groves, the famous Peter Groves. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. The fairy queen. <laughs> the fairy queen, a biggie. A biggie. It looks big, although it's not really bigger than uh, you know the kind of huge fat novel people buy at airports with, with yeah. sorcerers and magicians and you know dragons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantasy epics. Fantasy right? epics. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly not bigger than the, the Lord of the Rings. And people love that stuff, so you know. And it's got it's got dragons, it's got it's got uh, wizards, it's got elves. Well, I haven't, no, I haven't got elves. What am I it's saying? Got oh, we've got dwarves. It's got dwarves. Dwarves. Yeah. Plenty of dwarves. Yep. Mm. Squires. Squires, knights. Femme fatale. Femme fatale. Lots of femme fatale. Uh, maidens imprisoned in towers. You know. It does. A lot, there's a bit of dark stuff too, you know, rape in dark caves and things and Forms. scenes of torment. Mm-hmm. Fawns, yes. <laughs> well, anyway, there's a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> well, it, is. it would suit a modern audience very well. I think so. Language, I so think so. That's why we Absolutely. So Peter and I spent the last four ish years? Yeah, well, I worked out maybe 200 hours of oh, roughly. Probably. <laughs> a ballpark figure. <laughs> um, analyzing the Fairy Queen, doing essentially close analysis on it, um, canto by canto, stanza by stanza. Um, so we're not going to do that again, because <laughs> <laughs> it would yeah. take too long, but we're going to sort of give a, what, a layman's guide, a student's guide? Yeah, and, and try to make people enthused about it, mm. uh, maybe. I... As enthused as we are? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great stuff. I love it. One of my favorite pieces of literature, no question. <laughs> um, and, and rereading it has been just as fun. I'm now working on an article on it, so I'm rereading to to gather evidence. As, as that excellent, happens. excellent. It's it's very interesting poem because it, it, the language isn't actually that complicated once you get into it. It's not it's not as dense as Shakespeare can be sometimes, for example, or Milton. It flows rather beautifully, and, and the whole thing is it so often seduces you with these you know visions of. Of glades and woods and streams, and romantic. Romantic. Yeah, romantic there's, there's a strong romantic element to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On the other hand, to get to the bottom of bits of it is quite difficult, you know. So it's it's simultaneously approachable, but it has these depths that mm. kind of can draw you in. It requires, as Milton does, a vigilant reader, a good reader. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Educated reader, but yeah. he educates as he goes. Yeah. Well. But that's, I mean, the crucial method of uh, message of the poem, or one of the crucial messages is that um, in order to behave morally, you must be constantly vigilant. You must be on the watch Mm. for the con artist and the, you know, you must. That's right. You have to read the fine print and not let yourself get led astray by a pretty face, for example, or, you know, whatever else. Or Or a cream cake. Or a cream cake, (laughs) yes. (laughs) That's right. 
So um, originally published in 1590, and how many how many books? It's three, isn't it? Three books in 1590, yeah. Yeah, and then the rest in 1596, and then this weird mutability. Yes, it's kind of it's a kind of coda to the mm-hmm. poem, I'd say. Yeah. And our theory is that even though it's unfinished, he did finish it. Yeah, he <laughs> claims it's unfinished, and and this is. This is kind of a literary strategy you sometimes find. So that, you know, Col- Coleridge said of Kubla Khan that it was unfinished because he was interrupted by a person from Pollock mm-hmm. and he forgot the, the dream he'd had of the poem. But I don't think that's true. I mean, it, it, it makes sense, that poem. It makes perfect sense, but it's a bit crazy mm. for the contemporary audience. The <laughs> and so he comes up with this theory of a dream and an interruption to kind of excuse its weirdness. Uh, yes, he did. Yeah, he just yeah. didn't finish half a dozen lines in it. Okay, well, they're, they're, <laughs> <laughs> they're sort of half lines, and and Spencer imitates this in one or two places. Interestingly, mm-hmm. it's a kind of convention. So, yeah, pe- perhaps mindfully saying, yeah, it's unfinished, also gives him a kind of kind of poetic humbleness, even like. Well, yes, yes, the old <laughs> yes, the old humility topos. That's yeah, right. That's yeah, right. Uh, Milton's the opposite. He says he's going to give you things unattempted yet in pro- prose or rhyme. Whereas M- Spencer says, oh, you won't, you know, this is not much really, but here it is, you know, what it is, take it and leave it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the first English epic? Yes. Yes. It certainly is. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an epic, but it's an odd sort of bastard epic, because it's an epic crossed with romance. Mm-hmm. And they're very different, because Epic has a, a very clear shape, a kind of arc, you know. The, the, the Aeneid is all about the transfer of authority and power from Troy to Rome, for example. You know, we're talking about <coughs> what's called secondary Epic, literary Epic, as opposed to Homer, which is a bit of a dog's breakfast, you know, in terms of plot. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But romance is the opposite, because romance just sprawls. It's like soap opera. It could go on forever. There's always more dragons to fight and more maidens to meet and more wizards to uh, to avoid. You know, <laughs> just... The Middle English neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so there's no reason why it should ever stop. But it's, that's not true of this poem. This poem has... It has an appearance of being unstructured. Mm. But underneath it, there's, there's a very clear structure to each of the six books. And... More than that, the six books themselves make up a kind of structure which kind of enlarges your view of the world as you move through. So it's very definitely meant to be read from, from go to woe. Mm. It's not meant to be dipped into like a box of chocolates, you know. The, the Romantics had this way of reading Spencer as a sort of delectation, you know. Take out the good bits. Yes. <laughs> and, and then you miss a lot of it. You, you, well, you mm-hmm. certainly do. I mean, Hazlitt, Hazlitt says so, that if, you know, if we find we suddenly become aware of allegory in the poem, it's like finding a bit of grit in your strawberries and cream, oh. which is <laughs> rather silly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas Keats and Shelley, uh, they read it very closely and very carefully, yes. and very inspired by it, and then imitate Spencer. That's right. Byron uses Spencerian stanzas uh, in... Oh, uh, Child Harold. Child Harold, I always mm. get the Don, Don Juan is, is Otava Rima. Yeah, okay. Mm. Very influential. Very, very. And indeed, even in the 18th century... He, um, there are several poets who write imitations, like the Schoolmistress okay. by Shenson, I think, is in Spencerian stanzas. It's a very wonderfully intricate stanza. It's interwoven. Spencer was very good at finding rhymes in English, and he's a bit of a show-off. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we know. <laughs> you know. 
even his sonnets are much they have far fewer rhymes than a Shakespearean sonnet or even an Italian sonnet they're again carefully interwoven in a very impressive way he cheats a little bit sometimes by spelling things in an odd way to get a rhyme but if, that's you, can, why not? if you can why not it's Elizabethan you know yeah. spelling was choose your own adventure really <laughs> so within this epic we have like mini epics happening and yeah. commentary on the structure of the epic we get different forms so the epic form the romance we have pastoral yeah and all sorts of other stuff masks for example mm. are in there just about every literary form known to the Elizabethans mm. finds a place in this epic lyric yeah. think of that gorgeous lyric you know on, on the Carpe Diem lyric about the rose in the uh, in the Baron Bliss yeah lovely lovely yeah, so everything is there. It's a, it's a real casserole. Mm. Which is the point because you build up to an epic in your poetic career and, and Spencer does this the old-fashioned way, starts with pastorals. That's right. Um, and moves his way through up to up to the epic and this is kind of his masterpiece. Yeah. Um, how old was he? Oh, well, he was writing it in 82. He was born in, what, 55? So... He would have, yeah, 30-ish. Yeah, which... Everyone sort of thinks now of poetry as this, you know, you're struck by genius, it's that very romantic idea, and you just spit the words on the page, and it means whatever to anyone, but the whole point was it was a career back then. You Absolutely. engaged in a career. Yeah. Um, I think that's really uh, and the epic was the Olympic event. Yeah. So you, you trained long time for that, as Milton did, of course, famously. And the model for this is Virgil, who wrote his, first of all, wrote his pastoral poems, mm-hmm. and then he wrote his... his um, you know, these shepherds piping under trees, and it's all very innocent, and, and so on. It's like practicing with language. Practicing yeah, with yeah. language, exactly. Pope did the same thing. His mm-hmm. first poems are, are pastorals, and they're absolutely beautiful. I have read them. Poems. Oh, good, <laughs> <Yeah>. good. <laughs> I'm a real Pope kid. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. They're beautiful poetry, but they're not, they haven't got the kind of intellectual substance that mm-hmm. his later poetry has. They're pretty. They're, pretty. <laughs> they're very pretty, yeah. yes. <laughs> exactly. So, so... I suppose the epic is, in a sense... Well, Dryden, who's, you know, just a hundred years after Spencer, Dryden described the epic as the greatest work which the soul of man is capable of accomplishing. So it's every Renaissance poet wants to write an epic, and if they can't write an epic, they will translate one, as (laughs) Dryden did with the Aeneid and Pope did with the Aeneid. Because Dryden didn't, and Shakespeare was different in that he didn't. He didn't. Although, you could... If you sort of squint... In the twilight at, at uh-huh. the Henry the Fourth place, oh, yeah. they sort of make an epic, weirdly, an epic about England's destiny and, and so on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then we get Milton, and then it's sort of the last real epic. Isn't it's the it? last. Yeah. Um, exactly. After that, we get mock epic. Yeah. Which is Byron. And yeah. Yeah. And there hasn't been one. <laughs> trying to think, I no, not really. Not I mean, really in cool. the English language, you get people kind of playing with the epic form, like I guess James Joyce and later on yeah. Wallace. But we've moved into a very different ballpark. That's right. Yeah. One of the earliest novels, of course, is Henry Fielding's Tom Jones, and oh, he yeah. described that as a comic epic in prose, which is a deliberately perverse description. <laughs> <laughs> and again, moving away from poetry and half of the yes. work within the poetry. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, dedicated to Rowley, so Walter Rowley. Mm, yes. Tell us why. <laughs> why? <laughs> and, and what significance of that is? Uh, well, I mean, Rowley was an important figure at court. He had the ear of the Queen. I mean, to some extent, being a Renaissance poet, 
you don't make your money out of sales. You make your money, you, you live by your patrons. So um, this encourages you, for example, to go in for a bit of flattery. There's lots of uh, dedicatory sonnets in the, the beginning of the Fairy Queen, which are full of flattery of various types. And of course, the Queen is the, is the major patron. The trouble is that she, didn't, she was a bit careless. She was famously tight. Mm. Um, Which she had to be. She had wasn't. to be. And her, <laughs> no, and her successor, James, wasn't either. Mm. Yeah, so um, let's say cautious with money. Mm-hmm. And in any case, it was actually doled out by her, her underlings, like Burley and so on. So she did promise Spencer a pension of £1,000 a year, but he never actually got it quite. <laughs> People foiled him, didn't they? People foiled him, and he had enemies at court because... Well, people would see portraits of themselves in some of the characters in The Fairy Queen, which is, you know, easily done. Yes. <laughs> and, and critics, 19th century critics in particular, were, were fond of trying to trace which knight stood for which Elizabethan lord. Or, <laughs> there are yeah. so many knights, though. There are so many knights, yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, so he tells Raleigh that this is a poem to fashion a gentleman or noble person in virtue, virtuous and gentle discipline. discipline exactly. So, so it's got a moral purpose, this poem, which of course is not unusual for Renaissance poetry. It's meant, yes, exactly, to... It's a teaching device. But of course he has a very sophisticated model of teaching. Teaching isn't just telling people stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yes, there's a ped- pedagogical element to it. There's pedagogical Teaching is leading you to insights which are your insights which mm. you kind of own or possess so I mean we, we could maybe look at some ways in which the poem does that in individual instances but yes it's a it's very much a, um, it's about the formation of the reader I suppose mm. it's, it's, it's kind of you know you can see the whole poem as a kind of building roman of the reader mm. the reader has learned a lot by the end of the poem including the meaning of courtesy which we should come to that's which is a, in, under, under Spencer's hands, it expands into a huge term, which will, virtually includes all of, human all of human and all of human relations and how they should be understood and engaged in and so on. Yeah. And you get the most out of the poem by returning to it, reflecting on it. Yes. It, it, yes. Yeah. And also, I mean, another thing that the way the poem works, and this is characteristic of large literary works, it's it's, it's one work, it's not six <laughs> yes. or seven, is that. Themes are introduced, a bit like music, you know, a motif is introduced and then it's enlarged upon and the second time it pops up, part of the meaning of that is in the context of the first time it popped up. He, he expects you to remember mm. the earlier parts of the poem. He's and so does Peter when you're <laughs> learning with him. <laughs> will recall. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. So it's the opposite of a kind of consumerist thing where, you know, you read it and you forget it. And it, mm. it tickled your fancy while you read it, but you don't remember it. Oh, he's recurring motifs, recurring symbols, recurring figures. Exactly. And, and always with a difference, with a slant, with an edge. So you're building up this a kind of extraordinary edifice, this mental edifice mm-hmm. as the poem progresses. It does it? expand in your head. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and take, you, you have this whole world that you're opening doors and, and moving between. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's an allegory. <laughs> it's an allegory. I'm sorry to do this to you again, Peter. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, yeah, it is. It is an allegory. <laughs> now, Spencer, well, what is allegory? Well, uh, allegory has two meanings, as we were saying the other day. It, he calls it a, a, a continued allegory mm-hmm. or dark conceit. Now, an allegory is simply 
a narrative metaphor. So a metaphor makes things, makes abstract things concrete and explicit, and so you can understand them. So you talk about the ship of state. Now, a ship of state, it's got to have a pilot, it's got to have a captain in charge, otherwise it's going to drift onto the rocks, you know. All that makes perfect sense. But then if you tell a story about the ship of state and you say that our bold captain, Scott Morrison, mm. led us <laughs> led us away from the, the shoals of this and onto the rocks of, um, you know... <laughs> What? Despair. Despair. <laughs> the rocks of despair. Yeah. Something like that. You're, you've, you've, you've turned it into an allegory. Mm. So an allegory is a way of turning... Because, you know, human beings aren't good at digesting abstract explanations. They're very good at narrative. Mm. Because narrative is what... From yes. We, we live and breathe and eat narrative. It's, mm. it's fundamental to our being. So that's what it is. Explaining through narrative, where there's a translation. And so... The point about allegory is that it is, it's, a, it's a teaching device to make things clearer and plainer, mm. to reveal. And, and very often that's exactly what Spencer is doing. That, that you might call the rhetorical tradition of allegory. And we'll talk a bit about um, the levels in a second. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But um, that's one aspect of it. But he also calls it all dark conceit as though it's the same thing. And it kind of is. But the notion of allegory is a dark conceit. Conceit means idea or invention, Italian concetto. So um, dark, though, means enigmatic. Mm. Uh, and so there's a second meaning of, of, of allegory, which goes back to Plato, which is about taking deep or mystical truths, truths that should be hidden from, you know, the, the unwashed many, <laughs> <laughs> Joe Sixpack. Yes. <laughs> Jim Rose. <laughs> That's right. Who can only profane it by simplifying it and turning it into slogans and putting it on baseball caps, you know. Mm. Um, because the truth, it, it won't survive that kind of mm-hmm. simplification. So it has to be wrapped up in a way that the, the wise reader can maybe partially unwrap it, can work at it, and underneath it all is a kind of mystical truth which we may not ever fully understand. Mm. The, end, the poem ends with a vision that is possibly beyond you know, human understanding in any case. It points towards it, but it, it doesn't explicate it because it would be an impertinence to explicate it. Actually, literally, like, there is there's no sort of satisfying ending. It's only by reflection on the whole poem and, and, and your kind yeah. of thinking about it that it is a satisfying ending. Yeah. yeah. And if what you take away is, wow, it's complicated. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> you know. That's true. <laughs> So, so allegory can be simultaneously an unwrapping, a making plain, mm-hmm. and a wrapping up, a, a obscuring. Like the bush, the, the dollar. Y- yeah. Let's pass the parcel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, now, allegory, allegory derives ultimately. It's a medieval sort of invention. It's not a classical thing, mm-hmm. and it derives from ways of reading the Bible, in particular meaning the Old Testament to make sense of it. I mean, it's, it's a bunch of a bunch of Bronze Age peasants wandering around a desert, you know. What, what does that mean for me? Yes. A, <laughs> well, you interpret it as prefiguring, sketching forth what they thought of as truths of the New Testament, essentially the passion, the redemption, the things that really matter to a Christian. So when Moses, and we'll, we'll see this in the poem, when Moses leads the chosen people out of 
out of Egypt, a bond, land of bondage and slavery, through the Red Sea, which miraculously parts and takes them to the land of milk and honey. That's a, a typological allegory, a typological allegory of Christ with Moses, the chosen people who are the elect, those mm-hmm. destined for heaven. He leads them through death, which doesn't destroy them, but lets them through to heaven, which is the land of milk and honey. So you can make sense of it by reading it typologically. And there are lots of examples of this in lots. as well as people interpreting. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. That's right, exactly, exactly. So that's a typological... <laughs> that's a typological <laughs> allegory. And typological means, ultimately, what you need to believe, or what you should believe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now, in Spencer, it's not always um, a Christian or a theological belief that's being explicated here. It may be some other kind of belief. Mm. But nonetheless, it's explaining itself. There's a second kind of allegory. I mean, obviously, we start with the literal level, which gives you the story. <laughs> then we have the typological, possibly a typological reading, which tells you what you ought to believe. There's also a moral reading. It's also called tropological, but I don't think that term is going to help people. <laughs> yeah. A moral reading, which tells you not what you should believe, but what you should do mm. as a wayfaring Christian in the world. What's the Latin tag? Oh, quid. Quid credas means what you should believe. Quid credas, quid agas, what you should do. Mm. These are subjunctive forms. That's why they may sound unfamiliar. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's a fourth level, which is only intermittent, I think, in Spencer, which is um, the anagogical level. I wouldn't worry about that word. This refers to eschatological matters, meaning... To do with the destiny of the soul. Oh, that old chestnut. That old chestnut. <laughs> quo tendas, where are you going? Mm-hmm. Where are you going is quo, quo vadis, of course. And these letters aren't always necessarily like one leads the other, leads the other, they're not always neatly. No, pitched. exactly. And they're not always, always there. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it'll be thick allegory and sometimes it'll be thin allegory. Um, and also there are other kinds of things that he brings in to allegorize, which aren't part of the traditional. Because the traditional thing is medieval, and therefore it's entirely theocentric, mm, okay. yep. God-centred. Uh, and this new understanding of allegory, you know, Spence is very much in some ways medieval, but he's also a man of the Renaissance. Yeah, and so, a very man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you have historical allegory, which is sort of, you know, quid credo, that's what you should believe, but mm. um, it's not what you should believe in terms of saving your soul, it's what mm. you should believe about the past. And it's interesting that the whole saving the soul element as the poem progresses, moves away from the theocentric kind of approach and becomes yes. more very cultural, social... It absolutely does. Like a humanist, could we say? Well, yeah. yeah I mean, I think that's a not unreasonable way of putting it. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So we start with a, a very um, theocentric... Mm. The, the very first book, which is about the night of holiness. It's about what must I do to be saved? How, how do I save my soul, you know? And we end up with a much broader view of man in society and relating to other people. There's all this discussion of law and what law should look like, yes. what relations with other people should look like, how you should treat your wife, brother, exactly. teacher, friend, yes. Peasant. Peasant. <laughs> Dog, even. <laughs> yeah. Donkey. <laughs> Donkey, yes. <laughs> it's all in there. It's all in there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. At, at one point we decided facetiously that we could boil it down to don't be a dick. Yes, well, <laughs> that is the next issue of the 
exactly. Because yeah. as a, as a, as an, a knight, um, there's a lot of opportunity to treat people in that way. Um, lots of dickery. Lots of dickery. <laughs> and lots of temptation to dickery. <laughs> the very first line of the poem, of course, is a gentle knight was pricking on the plain. And technically what that means is that he's spurring his horse on, so he's moving quite fast. Yep. But there's a pun on that word prick, which is absolutely, as we discover, justified because Red Cross is, is a young impetuous knight and he's driven as much by yeah. his desire for fame and women let's face it you know, <laughs> by perfectly human sort of desires and urges as he is for a thirst for salvation mm. you know so in thi- terms he's kind of driven by his dick at the start he is, he's yeah. led by it you led know by, yeah. and that's always a mistake so we see him fall into the poo in various occasions, precisely. You know, <laughs> he, he basically fornicates with the scarlet woman of revelations <laughs> because he's not paying attention to what she's saying or to what she's wearing. She's you know, wearing, sort of, she's wearing a, a, a Pope's mitre. It's very <laughs> yes. Yeah, Pope's mitre, she's got the cup. That's right. And, you know, these are, these are like neon signs saying, well, it's like Danger Will Robinson, you know, <laughs> yes. if, if you recognise that illusion. <laughs> But no, all you can see is how pretty she is and you know, how he fancies her. Mm-hmm. So he falls falls into the pit. Constantly. Constantly, <laughs> that's right. And before we got going, I also wanted to ask you to sort of say something about the poetry itself because this is the Peter Groves, this is the man who knows his scansion and his meter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just sort of explain Spencerian stanzas and, and how they work and how the poetry works a little bit. Well, it's very interesting. If you think of um, other kinds of verse that people choose for epics or very long poems they they move in a kind of forward way you think of Milton for example mm-hmm. and Milton just relentlessly thrusts onward <laughs> so there's lots of enjambment the sense overflows the lines there's rarely a point in Milton where you can stop and take a breath yeah, um, it's breathless it's breathless poetry yes yeah. that's right that's right exactly and there's always this onward push now, the Spenserian stanza is a nine-line stanza. It's very intricate. So it goes A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C. Um, so only three, only three rhymes. And the last line is always an Alexandrian, a six-foot line rather than a five-foot line. So it's very much a punctuation. Mm-hmm. So it moves in these nine-line chunks, which can seem very leisurely in some ways, can't it? it mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the and then other times it really packs a punch. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And, and there's a sense too that, that, that you've got all these pauses every nine lines for reflection, mm. and before you you jump in again for the next the next stanza. Again, part of just learning this network of tools is using to make us learn. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it's very different from Milton, or even from the couplet. You know, couplets again, couplets could go on forever. Mm. Um, Dryden and Pope both translate. Virgil and, and, and Homer into couplets. Yeah, yeah. uh, it sort of works, it sort of doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem with translation, isn't it? That's the problem with a fundamental problem with translation, exactly mm-hmm. so. And it's it's sort of, well, sometimes it's a kind of leisurely diffuse quality to the style. It's not, it's not like a dense metaphysical poem. Not, not, sometimes it is a bit. Mm. You know, there's a huge variety of styles. We mustn't assume that Spencer always writes the same way. But there, there, there's, there's, there's one line where he talks about an angel. Uh, by his side, they, fat, they sat a fair young man 
whose years were fresh and looks were something. I mean, so, you know, he's a fair young man, and the second line tells you he's fair and young, and then the third line tells you that he's young, and the fourth line tells you that he's fair. <laughs> but it's not repetitive, because he's, he's, he's doing, using what Renaissance poets called copia, mm-hmm. which means a, um, a, a kind of overflowing of language, which is, which is delightful, because mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's lovely poetry. And, and so you've got a sense that you're sort of pausing, you're looking at this scene, you're taking it in, you're, you're not being... Yeah, you're not being pushed along relentlessly by a tide of... As Milton does to some extent. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So so although there's not a lot of content, the first line states the theme in that stanza and adds almost nothing to it in terms of information, it's it's a kind of just a a sort of pleasant wallowing in the scene and a kind of... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Particularly in, in places like the Bower of Bliss. Or, yes. Um, even the Cave of Mammoth, you're kind of wallowing down there with him. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's really poetry. That's right. So he goes into lots of description mm. for what, what, what we call nowadays ekphrasis. Mm-hmm. Mm. And we use entrelacement. Entrelacement, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's a narrative technique. Mm-hmm. Um, which is very common in the Fairy Queen. It gets more and more common as you move through the poem. You can think of it, think of it you know those people at the fair who, who start one plate spinning on a pole and then they had another plate spinning and then they've got to manage two plates because if, if it stops spinning it's going to fall and crash. And then they had more and more poles. You think, how many can they have without the whole thing crashing down? Many. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, that's what the plot of the Fairy Queen tends to do as you move from book one and book two, which have relatively straightforward plot centred on one night and then books three and four and five and six have a whole bunch of stories going on at once. Multiple people coming back in. Exactly, yes, and suddenly reappearing. And in fact, you know, there's there's really only one clear break in the whole poem because the beginning of book two is actually the continuation of book one. Mm -hmm. Guyon and Red Cross meet up and they have a little chat and so on. So he's going to be careful to stitch it all together. But entrelacement means that you... It, it, it's, I think, a common technique in, 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 in things like soap opera. You, you, you stop a thought, a story, just when things are going to get sort of difficult or hairy or mm-hmm. whatever. Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger, sort of a cliffhanger. And you switch to another one. And now, you know, meanwhile, back at the farm. Mm. Meanwhile, back at the farm <laughs> was the phrase we use a lot. And it's funny, just rereading the first book again. Um, each stanza, uh, each, each canto, that's largely how it's working. Yes, book, that's right. Now I know what's happening, it was more interesting to watch it happen. Yeah. That, that's right, exactly. And it's only a few characters, once you have a full cast, yeah, <laughs> a yeah. village of characters. That's yeah. right. But of course, I mean, the, the poem begins with, um, you know, I shouldn't jump the gun here. The poem, <laughs> the poem begins with the first knight, whose name is Red Cross, as we said. It actually turns out to be St. George, but he, he must become St. George, yeah. patron saint of England. Uh, and he's pricking on a plane, <laughs> and he's accompanied by his lady, mm-hmm. who's he. Well, it, the, her state's ambiguous. I mean, she's not exactly his girlfriend. He's rather, she has recruited him to defeat the evil dragon who was imprisoning her parents in a high tower, which, of course, is allegorically the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. and is the dragon of sin. So he's got a big task. He's got to undo the, the fall. fall. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> it's a biggie. 
Which would be but book one, guys. <laughs> <laughs> book one, that's and there's, of course, accompanied by a dwarf. Now, one allegorical meaning of this is, in, in, on, on the level of quid credas, what you should believe, is that we're dealing here with a sort of very interesting splitting up of the psyche. Mm. So that Red Cross stands for human will. The Lady Una, who is partially veiled, stands for higher reason, mm. God-given reason, the, the bit of reason that survives the fall, and which you know we think of also as conscience, right reason, the thing that advises us. And then lower reason, or ratio, which is the dwarf. And all, uh, what Ratio does is just work out how to do stuff. It can't tell you what to do. It can only tell you how to do what it is you want to do. So it, it's, morally, it's morally neutral. Whether you want to rob a bank or you know, um, feed, feed the hungry, Ratio will... Yeah, yeah. First find a step ladder. Second find a bucket. You know, that kind of thing. Well, we see that when they're in crisis. He just he grabs... Red Cross's armour and off he goes. Yes. Like, I need to find help. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's right, exactly. So, very useful, but he's a dwarf. Yeah. Um, you know, because this is a book about your spiritual relation to the world, and ordinary human reason is dwarfish. Mm. It, 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 in, in, in later, in, in book two, of course, um, he has more stature, the, the idea of, 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 um, of Ratio, because, you know, it's more useful. Ratio was a much more useful thing. Dion had a <laughs> oh, yeah, that's yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're, they're going along and they have their first adventure. Mm. They're, they're driven into a wood, which is. Now, this is. You see, he begins with baby steps mm -hmm. because the thing is called the wood of error. Now, when you label allegory, you make it unmistakable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, the characters don't see the sign, as Dante does. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but we do. We yes. are told as part of the teaching apparatus. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it's very interesting. They're driven into it by a storm which erupts suddenly. And the, the reason I'm going into this is I want to talk about you know the way Entrelacement works in book one is that we go between the various parts of the psyche mm. as they become in a sense separated but they're also parallel because they're in the same body you know they're experiencing the same things yep. but with different perspectives so the will sees this storm as a kind of punishment from an angry Jove an angry parent mm. but the the language Spencer uses and this is why we have to you know we need to look at the language as we shall expect yes <laughs> Uh, renders it as a kind of loving act mm -hmm. of kind of fertilizing of Mother Earth by Father, Father Sky, if you mm -hmm. see what I mean. <laughs> so that um, the interpretation, the, the, the will interprets what's about to happen as a punishment, when in fact it's a sort of medicine, it's a kind of therapy. And the Latin phrase for this is... Quae videtur poina est medicina. No, no, what looks like a punishment, punishment yeah, medicine, medicine, yeah. And if you think about uh, medicine in that period, it often looked like punishment, <laughs> torture. Yeah, rip out yes. and, and hit, yep. Oh, God, yes. Well, cutting for the stone. You, you went in through the perineum, which is a very tender part of the body. Yeah. <laughs> you grab the kidney stone, then you, you cover the wound in urine as a kind mm -hmm. of antiseptic substance, and you bound the legs tightly together, and you hope it didn't go rotten, you know. So that looks like torture to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, what we find is they become separated because the will is always, in a sense, in opposition to 
I don't think she's sensible with grace. You know, she's an embodiment of grace yeah. on, on another allegorical level. She would call it the anagogical level. And so they experience the same events, but through very different, or from very different perspectives mm-hmm. as the poem progresses, which is, you know, it's fascinating in a way. It's, uh, it shows us. But we have to understand what's going on there. Yeah. So, so they're going to the Wood of Error. And mm-hmm. now here's where, you know, it's, it's our introduction to allegory. So he keep, makes it very simple. What happens is that Red Cross goes into the wood. And what happens on a purely narrative level, Red Cross goes into the wood, sees, he, he, he sees a cave, and he thinks, it'd be a good idea to go into this dark cave. Why not, you know? Because he's a young, he's a young knight. Exactly, exactly. And if he <laughs> weren't doing that, he'd be, he'd be standing on the roofs of trains as they go into bridges, you know? Yes. The kind of thing that young men do. <laughs> so he's, he goes into the cave, and he finds a serpent mm-hmm. called Error. Hopefully. Again. Again. <laughs> That's right. And he has a battle, cuts off her head, it's his first victory. And on that level, you can you can interpret it quite simply. So um, what you should believe, well, the world is full of error, and error in this particular sense, because we're dealing with, you know, salvation. Error is heresy. Um, there's also, interestingly, another level here, because... Red Cross stands for the English Church. Mm-hmm. The English Church, as it started out, when apparently, apparently, <laughs> Joseph of Arimathea brought the Holy Grail to England. God knows why. It's uh, <laughs> a nice place to put it. <laughs> nice place to put it. <laughs> That's why, you know, King Arthur's looking for the Holy Grail in, mm. in the Monty Python film. Um, yeah, <laughs> he brings it there. And so... This is the, the reformers' argument, the Church of England's argument, that what they're doing is not innovating with Protestantism. They're not claiming something new. They're going back to a pure original that has been corrupted. We had it perverse. first. Yeah. We had it first, and now we're recovering it. Mm. Yeah. And what's their argument about the Catholic Church in that scenario? We've got the Holy Grail, and you... Well, I mean, the Holy Grail is, is, is not quite the point. The point is that um, the, the English Church then was the doctrinally pure mm-hmm. and simple and the real McCoy and what happened in Rome is that the church got worldly mm. there, was a, there was a famous event which didn't happen but <laughs> was nonetheless widely believed to have happened called the donation of Constantine oh right yeah. yeah so the first Roman emperor who becomes a Christian basically wills the Pope all his temporal power you know so the Pope becomes <laughs> a ruler <laughs> yeah yeah the Pope becomes a ruler and that's the corruption and you know it's downhill from there, mm-hmm. and so, and so you know what what the English Church is doing is going back to these originals. So Saint George acts out the same thing. He starts out kind of pure, yeah. um, wearing the whole armor of God, yeah, and yeah. exactly. And he's he's closely allied to Una, who is the truth mm-hmm. in this in this version of the allegory, this historical allegory. Fallen reason, but reason nonetheless. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And then he becomes separated from her by the workings of Archimago, the wizard, mm. who makes him suspect her. Who lo- he loses faith in her mm-hmm. and turns to the whore of Babylon, mm. basically. And this is kind of allegory for what's happened to the church, and so they're trying to bring it back. So that's right. And so at the very end, when he marries Una, that is the restoration of the church. Mm-hmm. So that allegory carries all the way through. It's an allegory that, if you like, 
explains the Reformation, accounts for it, justifies it, and in, so on. In the same way that sort of Virgil is justifying um, Rome being the new seat of the yes, Virgins, he's exactly. doing the same thing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But, but. but. <laughs> well, but. <laughs> well, this is the thing, because it's lovely complex stuff. It's yes. not simplistic at all. Um, so on the, on the level of what you should believe, that's what's going on, if you like. On the level of what you should do, the moral level of allegory, well, basically, yeah, you should attack error, heresy, wherever you see it. Mm. Chop off its head, you know. Good thinking. And <laughs> anagogically, there's even a suggestion that it represents Christ at the end of time defeating the serpent uh, in the Battle of Armageddon, which leads to, of course, you know, the New Age and the Thousand Days and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so that all works neatly, but then all that is scuppered mm. or complicated by the narrative, because in the narrative, as we said, he's behaving like a complete idiot. Yuna, um, <laughs> who stands for his, you know, his reason, his conscience, says, no, no, don't do this. You don't need to do this. Don't do it. It's silly. It's foolish. <laughs> and of course, he doesn't pay the slightest bit of attention. He yes, charged. <laughs> That's right. He charges in. He's nearly defeated by the monster of error. It spews out all sorts of books and papers and vomit, you know, and almost drown him. Um, he does succeed more by luck than anything else. And so there's a whole different story here about, about his experience, his impulsiveness, about what's driving him here, which is not a zeal for truth mm. uh, or, or salvation or anything like that, but just being a young bloke who... Prideful. Prideful. Yeah. And almost like a childish. There's a line when he's very near the beginning. Upon a great adventure he was bound. The greatest Gloriana to him gave. The greatest glorious adventure in the world. And it's like boy's own stuff, mm. you know. He sees himself as the hero. He's going to wear the Spider Man suit and, you know, conquer Which them. He has, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, got the right. armor. he's got the armor. That's right. So the. the, the, the narrative level because sometimes when people use allegory in a simple way the characters are drained of all kind of personality or, or lifelikeness and I, I, to some extent I think this is true of Bunyan although I, I don't know I'm not really a Bunyan expert so maybe I'm just speaking out of prejudice here but he's also a human being mm. and this complicates the allegory beautifully because really what he's doing here is foolish foolhardy stupid and he just kind of gets through on luck essentially <laughs> but it won't always be that way so you know he's he eventually he's going to kind of fall in the pool as he does as he does, as he does. <laughs> that's right <laughs> and incidentally there's one other thing I want to mention before we leave this mm. which is speaking of Spencer's language Spencer loves puns he does yes and big jokes but puns but puns and big jokes <laughs> that's right and sometimes both at once <laughs> my favourite <laughs> Um, and we have to recognise that puns were something very different in the early modern period. Because for us, a pun, it, because we believe in the arbitrariness of the relation between the signifier and the signified, between the word and the meaning, mm -hmm. you know, we call it a dog, the French call it a chien, the Spanish call it a perro, and the Germans call it a hoot. And those are all just arbitrary signs. We could swap around, we could... We could call dogs cats and cats dogs tomorrow, but we all agreed. Mm -hmm. yeah. Why we would do that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a story, it's probably a furphy, but um, that during the Cultural Revolution, the Chinese 
decided to make green traffic lights mean stop and red ones mean go, simply because they could and because there are <laughs> arbitrary signs, you know. Yeah, okay. Um, causing a lot of accidents, obviously. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but in theory, you could. Um, now, they didn't think like that because they thought that God... Now, God obviously confused the one human language at the Tower of Babel with many human languages. Mm-hmm. But they thought that God kind of underwrote every human language so that in any language there is a necessary relation because God does it and he doesn't do things arbitrarily, apparently. Well, open to dispute, I suppose. Mm. But <laughs> <laughs> there's a necessary relation, which God knows, even if we don't, mm-hmm. between the word and the thing, the meaning. So if something is called um, a raven, that must have something to do with its nature. So Milton, who's who's probably the last great poet to think about puns in this way, Mm. talks about the ravens who bring food to Joshua in the desert, though ravenous. Mm. And that looks to us like a very weak, weak pun. You know, they're ravenous, but they don't eat it themselves because God's telling them to give it to to Elijah or Joshua or whoever it is, I can't remember to be honest. To Milton, it it tells us something. It's like like the they all love the pun on sun and sun, the sun mm. of God and the sun in the sky, because <laughs> it reveals something. Yeah. It's revelatory, yes, exactly. Yeah. So Spencer, all puns in are revelatory, and of course because he can mess about with spelling, mm. he vastly increases his range of possible puns. Mm. <laughs> so here we've got this complex thing. We've got. A knight errant. A knight errant is technically somebody who wanders around looking for adventures. Now that's not actually what he is here because he's actually been he's being given a particular task. Mm-hmm. But he becomes a knight errant after he abandons the task. After pretty much straight away. Yeah. Pretty, pretty much straight away, exactly. <laughs> so a knight errant is just a you know, chancer, he's just looking for opportunities. Often to beat up other knights, you know, mm-hmm. that's seems to be the rule. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One, literally wandering, errare in Latin, to wander. Mm-hmm. And that's an error means you're wandering from the, the true path, the straight and narrow. So the errant knight will fall into error. Error is not related etymologically to heresy, but, but of course for Spencer they can be. Mm-hmm. So error is a kind, heresy is a kind of error, it's a wandering from the true path. And so he has... He has all these words kind of coming into... It's very neat, Oh, very neat. Like what I did, guys. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it kind of, it's kind of enriching the, the texture, too, in a mm. curious way. And that's just Canto 1. That's just Canto 1, <laughs> yes. So, so he defeats Aram, and then they stumble across Archimago. They do, they do. <laughs> now, you see, this is the thing. Because Aram, yeah, easy peasy, he thinks to himself. Because evil, evil comes to you... You know, with horns and fangs and breathing fire. That's, and you know, Satan, he comes with his hooves and his tail. He, he does, and, and you think, no worries, stick a label on him. Mm. But of course, that's not the way it is in the real world, because Satan would be an idiot, and he's not an idiot. Mm. Um, Satan's good. Satan's good, that's right. <laughs> so, the Satan will always come to you. If you're a man, he'll come to you in the guise of a beautiful woman. Mm. Or, or something like, or a wise preacher or something. Lead you astray, exactly, once, you, once you've been kind of hooked. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the famous story of St. Dunstan, patron saint of blacksmiths. Okay. Well, uh, he was beating out iron in his thing one day, and this, this beautiful woman came into the shop, the, 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 the forge, mm-hmm. but he knew it was the devil. 
I don't know. Oh, right. Well, Saint. <laughs> <Sorry. Okay. laughs> and then yeah. more saintly. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Because you could d- distinguish. Because you could distinguish somehow, yes, which we mortals, well, or saints are mortal too. We nonsense. <laughs> so he pinched her nose with his red hot t- tongs. Seems a little un- unfriendly. Okay. But then, of course, the, the devil screamed and turned into a fire breathing, you know, horned monster. Yeah, got it right. <laughs> yes. As long as he doesn't do it to everybody who comes in. Yes. <laughs> but that's it. So, what Spencer is saying is that you must always be vigilant because underlying all this is the rule, and it goes back to medieval Christianity, it goes back to Aquinas, that human beings never choose evil. That's why it's so significant when Satan in the Paracelsus says, Evil, be thou my good. It's such a striking thing because mm-hmm. humans can't do that. They don't do that. They choose goods. But the point is, they may choose an inferior good, as when, as when it's, it's okay to talk about Milton, isn't it? Because this is part of the com- podcast. Yay. Yes, yes. <laughs> talks about Milton. <laughs> so when 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 Adam chooses staying with Eve over obeying God, he's choosing a good, but it's an inferior good. It's not the good he's meant to. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, it didn't go high enough off of the shelf. Yeah. Exactly. Brand. Exactly. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> And when Eve sees a glittery, fascinating serpent, she, you know, she doesn't think, hello, this is a bit odd. <laughs> Talking snake. <laughs> Talking snake. Well, she's distracted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's distracted. He's because not... he's like penile, isn't he? He's yes, well... <laughs> and he's, he's mane. And... That's right, mm-hmm. that's right. So she doesn't think to herself, ooh, I've been told there's you know, an evil thing walking around the garden trying to seduce me. Perhaps I should be a bit wary. No, she just punches straight in. And... This is what happens with Red Cross, of course. It, well, he's it, not seduced by Archimago, but Archimago seems pious and holy. And he, he puts in, Spencer puts in little signs that we read as Catholic. Catholic he's, he's, Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, for Protestant, Catholics must therefore always be kind of, you know, on the side of the devil. And associated with magic. Magic. Which is why he's kind of like this magician creature. Exactly. Because his name is, again, this is Spencer playing with, with words and etymologies, yes. He's both um, Archimago, he's the great wizard, yep. Magus, but he's also Arch Image, he's an image manipulator, a shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. He can be anything he wants, he can appear to be anything he wants to be, as indeed the devil can. Mm-hmm. It's part of his. Yeah. And, the, and the things like we never see the devil, the devil in this, but we see so no. many iterations. Yes. And then we're meant to compare, like we get Merlin later on, who's the good wizard. Yes. Uh, yeah. And this is your, but your job, as I said earlier, is to distinguish the true good from the glittering false good. Mm-hmm. And the lots, I mean, you know, Florimel, the false Florimel, the true Florimel. Even the false, you know, the real, you know. Yeah, yep. exactly, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. And you've got to be on the ball. Mm-hmm. You mustn't doze off or be distracted or. <laughs> So it's not like a romantic idea. You need a good heart to be good. Mm. You have to be vigilant. Though. You have to be vigilant. Spiritually, uh, yeah. You have to read the fine print. Mm. You have to think to yourself, mm, does this Nigerian millionaire really want to give me $5 million? <laughs> or could there be something else in this? <laughs> or is it Satan? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And of course, that also illustrates another point, which is that fallen creatures are more susceptible because... They don't base their deceptions on purely rational comparisons, but upon desires, fallen desires. So that Red Cross's attraction to Duessa is based purely on, on lust, essentially. Mm. Um, and it discards all the, all the warning signs that should be flashing at him. Or it, it can be quite innocent, but it's still desire. Like, for example, in, in, again, back in Paradise Lost, the captain who moors his 
his boat at dusk in the sight of a sleeping whale, doesn't simply mistake the whale. It's not, it's not just a kind of innocent mistake, mistake the whale for an island. He wants it to be an island. Mm-hmm. He desperately wants somewhere to put his anchor for the night. So our desires compound our failure to distinguish true good and false good. They're we're misled almost unconsciously. Yeah, unconsciously, exactly. Point, like we are whole so we don't. Plants. Yeah, and so it's very hard to guard against that which is unconscious. Mm. You know. So and then we get Archimago, and so he slips in under their defences. He represents the Catholic kind of priest. He's got his beads. Yes. And, and his book. And his book, yes. His, his, that's right. And he strews a few Ave Marys. Yes. And he speaks of popes. <laughs> <laughs> and he says. Come back to my place. And he's, he's got this, this very smooth, seductive line and pattern, mm. you know. He's, he sucks you in, so to speak. The, re- the reason that Protestants associated the, the church with magic, the Catholic church with magic, is that they saw it as, you know, the whole idea of the sacraments, like, for example, the sacrament of the Eucharist. Mm. Priest says a few words in Latin, piece of, nice piece of toast, turns into the flesh and blood of Christ. Yeah, how is that not magic? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. The transubstantiation? Yeah, transubstantiation. They had a problem with it. They had a problem. Uh, but that was just the essence of it, you know. Mm. But but it just it just suggested that it was all the kind of unholy magic that was there to delude the peasants and get their money and so yeah, on. Yeah, it was flashy, shall we? Give us your money, we'll build more yeah, for God and that's right. wine on the way. That's right, you know, exactly. So, which, I mean, isn't well, true? Well, <laughs> not entirely, no. But not, no. Um, not true of everyone, I guess. You no. Know, there still, we'll talk more about this, that was still part of English culture in particular. You can't throw that out overnight. Yeah. Well, indeed, even even into the 17th century, a, a lot of this belief persisted. And and you find 17th century peasants who, who believe that water that has been, if you like, had a, a, an unused... But blessed wafer than the Eucharist dipped in it. Soggy. So, a soggy wafer. <laughs> That's right. Will cure sheep of skin diseases mm. because it's magical. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's God magic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and how would a peasant know anything else? So yeah. How do they understand? That? Yes, yeah. exactly. So all the subtle theological distinctions mm. are, and, and right. yeah, and Aristotelian philosophy that explains the notion of That's all lost on them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't entirely. Unjust mm-hmm. to perceive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and more the structures, I guess, of Catholicism, um, and then obviously individuals who are perpetuating this. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. exactly. And, and we'll talk. And, and Peter's written an article called "Spencer's Secret Synchronicity." Ah, yes. Which we'll talk about, about how Spencer is kind of dealing with this cultural shift. I guess that's happening in religion. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, thinking of thinking of any religion as a vertical thing, where at the bottom you have some pretty crude, uh, unexamined beliefs, half beliefs, um, traditions, mm-hmm. if you like, the superstitions. Superstitions. We just don't do it that way, you know. Without actually asking yourself why, because grandfather didn't do it that way. We're not doing it that way. Um, and at the top, of course, you've got a lot of very subtle intellectualizing, yeah. and then in between, you've got a spectrum. Uh, and very often, a, a, you know, a priest will talk down to an audience at whatever level he thinks can understand what he's saying, mm. 
rather than trying to give them the whole complex kit and caboodle. And so Spencer... Tries to raise us up. Well, yeah, well, yeah, what do you... Well, yeah, well, what, he's a syncretist in general. And what that means, a syncretist is somebody who believes, for example, in this case of the, you know, the spiritual realm does exist, that there is an afterlife, that there is a god, mm-hmm. but recognises that we have differing accounts in different religions. You know, there are half a dozen forms of Protestantism as well as Catholicism. <laughs> More than half a dozen, but half a dozen main ones. So what do you do? Well, you try and reconcile them. You try to find... It's as though you had, you know, you knew North America existed, but only half a dozen people had been there, and they brought back these conflicting accounts. And you try to find what you can put together that they tend to agree on or point to. And that is likely more true than any individual one of them. Yeah, that reveals... So yeah, so ordinary human doctrines are bound to be false because you know we see through a glass darkly mm-hmm. by means of a mirror that is in riddles. Uh, we can't see when we're in the flesh, but it's likely that Catholicism and Protestantism, to some extent, and other forms have all glimpsed part of this truth. Mm-hmm. They all have some validity, and although you you can't see it in its truthiness <laughs> when we're in the flesh um, you can approach it not by being dogmatic, not by being rigid but by being open mm. to the complexity of other belief systems to point yeah. the same way and so he approaches from a very intellectual um, standpoint yeah. uh, rather than dogmatically beating his drum of any one to the point of yeah. not hearing anything else you can sort of do a political analogy on this he looks more yeah exactly but remember the vertical spec that the Mm -hmm. spectrum because at at the bottom level these different religions are simply the ideological Mm. um, you know claims of different power bases and on that level he's absolutely true blue protestant and against the catholics yes (laughs) (laughs) uh, because of course you know the, the big threats to england were partly france but mainly spain Spain tried to invade England 1588 while he's halfway through writing The Fairy Queen. And it's yeah. showing in the Yeah, that's right. Yes, <laughs> in, in, in book five, that's exactly right. So um, there's no question on the political level where he stands. It's just that on these higher intellectual levels, mm. he's a lot more open to Catholicism as, as a system of thought. Mm. And people sometimes find that difficult to understand. You know, I view if you... It's okay or it's not okay. Well, no, it's not quite that way. It's like either you're left and the right, but actually it's much more complicated. Oh, absolutely. Even you might be left at you know, the bottom of the crude level, you, know, you have complex view of things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If you're an intelligent person. Exactly. And yeah. you might entertain Marxist analysis, which is very useful and very mm-hmm. interesting on, on many levels. Yeah, exactly. Literary theory, your approach yeah. to literature. Yes, yeah, exactly. 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 Yes, they meet Archimago. He says, come back with me to my hermitage. My hermitage. And the point is, we're meant, we're meant to discern what's a good hermitage and what's a bad hermitage. Exactly, because they get good hermitages later. But, yeah. But this one is in a veil. It's down. Not See, good. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas the good hermitage in this book is up on a hill. Mm-hmm. Um, hermit contemplation. And we get all the virgins, aversions. I wondered if, like, um, when Una goes back with the wife and the daughter to the little house. Oh yes, of course they go. That's kind of a version. It's sort of, yes. That's right, because it it represents 
Catholic castration, mm. you know, being shut up, because her name is Abessa, which mm. on one level makes her an abbess, but also it means absence, Abessa, not mm. um, ab esse, it's Latin for to be absent, to be, not to be present. Yeah, frustrating. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And corsica means blind heart. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of not. It, it, this is religion level of superstition, where you do again what, what, you, what your grandfather did, yeah. and you've got no idea why you're doing it, what it means. So hermitage for the sake of hermitage, rather than like true hermitage, which we get later on the hill. Yeah. And, and in that in that scene, um, we're, we're kind of. I, we jump around a bit. We are jumping. It's, okay. around. <laughs> it's can't be helped. So can't, be helped. Book. <laughs> can't be helped. Can't be helped. Exactly. Corsica, um, blind heart, or and Abessa. They 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 they're faced with Una and the lion, and, and Una and the lion in here allegorically stand for Una is the beauty of grace mm-hmm. of Christ's grace. Una means one. Yeah, it means one. Yeah. As with well, yeah. Dueto is two. Yeah. yeah. But they can't see that. They can't recognize that. On the other hand, the lion is the terror. Of God's avenging wrath, you know. Following her around. And if you resist Una, then you're going to get chomped by the lion. Mm-hmm. Because that, that's just logic. If you if you reject God in His beauty and glory and kindness and mercy, mm-hmm. then you're up for. Against yeah. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So in fact, the lion kills Kirk Rapine. Mm-hmm. Which and as we've talked about many times, they don't leave a note. <laughs> they don't leave a note, yes. Sorry, my lion killed your son. I'm, I'm you know. <laughs> We're off. <laughs> I, I trust this sixpence will cover it. <laughs> yes, okay, so all these different hermitage. So down in Archimago's hermitage, they take a nap. It's always struck me how, like, um, Chronicles of Narnia this is, and obviously C.S. Lewis knew his Spencer. Oh, yeah, backwards and sideways. <laughs> yeah, and I think that scene... Um, uh, where Mr. Tumnus takes Lucy and, and plays the fiddle and puts her to sleep, um, and then she's kind of led off into Narnia after that, um, is, is thinking of Spencer. And is right, thinking of, very likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah makes sense. Um, so, he makes them dream. He makes them dream, <laughs> yes. Morpheus. And of course, dreams are dangerous mm-hmm. because, you know, we have imagination which combines images together and, and allows us to foresee the future. We, we want to do something we haven't done before, but we have memories of. We, I don't know, we want to set up a, a fruiterer's shop. We've never done that before. Mm. But we have memories of shops and fruit and financial transactions. And we'll put them together. We'll put them together <laughs> and we can plan opening a fruiterer's shop. So that's good. Yeah. But also, it's kind of irresponsible and it will combine things into crazy stuff like unicorns mm. and <laughs> mad monsters. And while we're awake and sane, mm. and that's the important distinction... Um, judgment prevents anything. No, you can't have a unicorn. No, no put it away. No, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, like children playing with you know blocks and things and um, sketching. Uh, but when you're asleep, judgment is asleep. Mm. And so, in the famous phrase of Goya, that sleep of reason produces monsters. So, you're, 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 it's, it's a dangerous time. Mm. You're open to Incredible. illusion. Yeah, you. And indeed, we see this very much with Eve in the beginning of Book Five. Mm-hmm. In her dream. <laughs> in her dream. And of course, Milton has the idea, which is very interesting, that to some extent, dreams enact wishes. You know, this Freudian idea. Yeah. But it's very much there, isn't it? Yeah. You, you want to do it, and judgment, the nanny, has gone to bed. Mm-hmm. So you are allowed to play in this naughty way mm-hmm. with whatever it is you happen to. 
So, but of course, it's worse when we have somebody implanting dreams, as Satan does with Eve, or as Archimago does with, with you know, and Red Cross exactly, and particularly Red Cross. So he has a Red Cross dreams of her, basically having it away with the squire, mm. you know, and he, he, and that doesn't quite that doesn't quite convince Red Cross because he realizes it's a dream. So he goes one step further and he, he invents a sort of avatar, Una, and a kind of avatar squire, and he leads Red Cross to show them sort of humping, you know, yeah. basically. <laughs> um, AI, yeah. Yes, that's right. AI humping. That's right. <laughs> and so Red Cross says, well, that's that. Exactly. And goes. Exactly. And, and the crucial thing is, now you, you might say to yourself, well, actually, this is perfect AI, you know, there's, there's, not, a, there's not a glitch here. Um, how can we blame him for trusting his eyes? Mm. But what would the answer to that be? What would Spencer faith. faith. Yes. You can't trust your eyes. Or your reason. Your reason tells you that people can't walk on water or rise from the dead or feed 5,000 people with three loaves and two fishes or whatever. Well, in that case, your reason's wrong. Mm. And your eyes are wrong. You have to have... The faith is the evidence of things unseen, as St. Paul says. And he has to have... You know, love requires trust, which is a kind of faith. And so it's saying that, well, his relationship with Una isn't built on no, these things. And exactly. he doesn't have these things because he's still a young knight. Yes, a knight, but he's exactly. Exactly. And he's driven here by jealousy as he, he abandons her, which is, you know, a perverted form of lust, I suppose. Mm. And so he's already kind of in this kind of weakened psychological state. And then yes. he comes across someone who can help him. Or, well, or he does. <laughs> and incidentally, it's worth it mentioning here um, that... This is the way the poem works. It, it doesn't have a kind of narrative logic which is all worked out. Uh, things happen, rather as in a dream, not because they've got any causation, particularly, or because they have to happen, but because the logic of the dream. He, he, he's very much imitating the working out, the experience of dreaming in this poem. Mm, it is a dream-like state. Yeah. yeah. And this isn't anything new because, you know... The, much most of medieval poetry is about dreaming mm -hmm. and encountering people in dreams and indeed you know the, 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 the inferno mm. paradiso purgatorio these are kind of extended dreams where yeah. he meets people they're not claiming to be reality yeah. so and that's kind of the point of fairyland I'll just add in there like they're in this kind of alternative yeah Exactly, exactly. And in fact, you know, Spencer insists on this at the very first canto, mm. where the storm comes out of nowhere, a yep. blue sky, boom, because it's necessary to drive them into the wood yep. as part of the logic of the of the logic of the process of his learning. Mm. His, and he often represents this as chance. Yes. But actually... And he's always <laughs> flogging that word chance. By chance they came across, you know. <laughs> and it becomes a signal. Oh, yeah, you say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God has put it in the mouth. <laughs> yep. Exactly right. So by chance, <laughs> he comes across. He comes across. Foy and Sans Foy, yeah. Yes, mm. um, and of course, Sans Foy, he's now faithless, mm -hmm. sans foi, mm -hmm. literally in French. And Sans Foy, of course, that leads to, in Spencer's view, and in the view of a lot of Christians, if you don't have faith, you have no obedience to or commitment to the law, mm. any kind of moral law. Mm. So you know, lust, whatever prevails. Prevails, yes. <laughs> 
Lust and cream cakes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and everything in between. Everything in between. Yeah. And he, and he meets these knights, and as is the code in the Fairy Queen, if you see another knight, yeah. you drop your lance. You do. And you run straight at them. <laughs> it's like a sort of game. It's like a solemn game, you know. You, you never sort of say, hello. <laughs> can, you, can you direct me to the nearest castle? Or, you know, no, you attack. Just because they're a knight, there's yeah. often no explanation other than that. Yeah. And if they have a lady with them, she becomes yours. Yes. Mm. We'll talk more. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they do have a lady, don't they? They do, yes. They have um, Produvia. No, no. No, Fidesa. Fidesa. Fidesa, who we find out. Is actually, Fidesa. yeah. Fidesa, of course, literally would mean little faith. Mm. The essa is a diminutive, fide, faith. Yeah. But, of course, she's not really little faith. She's no faith at all because she turns out to be duessa. Mm-hmm. Doubleness. Deceit. Well, and again, so we get Archimago, who's like lots of different images. And yeah. we get Nuessa, Doubleness. Um, and these are all kind of clouding upon Una and Red Cross, faith and oneness. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly, right. exactly. Um, and he transfers his affections, shall we say, towards <laughs> Nuessa. <laughs> nice way of putting it. <laughs> and as I say, she, she really is. I mean, she's kitted out in a rather bizarre way. She's wearing a a Pope's mitre on her head. Mm. And, and people will accuse Spencer of blatant misogyny, like hard oh, yes. patriarchy, yes. because of the representation of Duessa. But I think that kind of misses the point that she's just dressed up for this way. Yes. We get much more complicated versions of, of women throughout oh, the poem. Absolutely. This is the bad one. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and she's taken from the Bible. She's the scarlet woman of revelations. The whore of Babylon. The whore of Babylon. Yeah. So she's kind of got, you know, her. Her part is scripted for her already. He's just doing his thing. He's just doing his thing, yeah. And because, in fact, book one is very much about biblical imagery Mm -hmm. and imagery to a great extent from the book of Revelation. So, you know, he's working with what he's got, yeah, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) But it makes makes sense because she then draws him away um, from from Duessa, from from Yuna, through desire. Mm And, it, you know, the, the fact that she's got all these signals that should make him more yeah, <laughs> wary uh, drives home that, that, that point about vigilance. Mm-hmm. But vigilance is subverted by desire, by fallen, by lust, let's, let's, let's be frank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and she leads him off to the house of pride. Mm-hmm. Pride is a queen, it, which is quite interesting because... Oh, let me just say something, a little, little rabbit hole here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it's, but it's a good rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, I spoke about the way the poem represents experience. It, it, it alludes to our experience of dreaming. You know, in, and in dreams, we often have the sense that what is happening has a kind of significance which is partly hidden from us. Mm-hmm which of course is, is exactly true of the poem. We have to find out what the significance are. And what's really interesting here, and what some people may feel incredulous about, is that to some extent Spencer is anticipating Jungian ideas about, about the integration of the personality. And you say, how can that be? You know, Jung, Jung lived in the early 20th century. But Jung based all his ideas upon his study of folklore literature. and literature, myth. Yeah, which is how which is how cultivate and curate and 
Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, in fact, it's not only odd, it's not only not odd, it's actually perfectly understandable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> because Spencer's drawing on these same ideas. And you know, one of the ideas is that society acculturates us by, if you like, polarizing our gender identity. Mm. You want to be a man, a, a knight. A knight is very much a man with his big lance mm-hmm. or, or his knobbly <laughs> club, <you know. laughs> and so on. And women. In, in, in romance are very often meek. Yes, and they need to be helped all the time. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, exactly. And we meet a few women later in this poem who don't need any help from anybody. They, and they don't take no shit from nobody. No. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> to some extent then, the, the, to become a, a, a sane human being, a whole human being, you've got to undo this split. You've got to become somebody who is both man and woman at the same mm. time. You've got to reheal that. And again, we see this very interestingly, positively represented later in the poem. Bertrand Lalande, Yeah, even yeah. Radigan to some Radigan, extent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Women are great, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Better than the men. The men yeah. repeatedly reveal themselves to be douchebags. So. Well, but the point is that a man cut off from the, the female side is going to be a douchebag. Mm-hmm. Um, and, not, and a, lot of, a lot of them aren't very willing to be, you know, no, there's Arthur Gore, but even then... <laughs> yes, yes, he, he resists. Yeah, he resists. Whereas women are much more likely to embrace and inform this whole... Yeah, exactly, character. exactly. And, you know, one of the things that counts as feminine in this view of things is intuition, mm. as opposed to reason, mm. you know. He's not really open to his intuitions here. His intuitions would have said, oh, don't go near her. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Run a mile. Reason. <laughs> kind of like, oh, she's hot. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. In, in Jungian theory, then, the, the female self that is, if it's like, rejected through, through, through um, socialization mm-hmm. is described as the anima. And she's represented in dreams often as a, as, a, as a beautiful young woman who is wise and knowing and so on. And it's part of your job to kind of become reacquainted with her. But if you reject her, she turns into a witch. <laughs> As Jung says, and this is exactly what happens. happens. Yeah. And it's almost as if Jung took this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. His own theory. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, and, and you know, there are, there are other kind of archetypes to be seen in the poem too. And one of the most interesting ones is the shadow. Mm. Uh, we come to the shadow a bit later on. He lives in a cave. He does. You know. <laughs> he doesn't shave. <laughs> he doesn't shave. No. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you know, this this is uncanny, frankly, and it's either some weird coincidence, or it means something, and I tend to believe that it means something. Mm. Well, it's Spencer, right? He's yeah. intelligent. He's putting this this thing together, this huge thing. He didn't have an Excel, Excel spreadsheet necessarily. Yeah, he had plans. He had plans. Yes, and I don't think he did a lot of things for the sake of doing. Them. No, exactly, he exactly. Like a very long chessboard. Yeah. yeah, and and you know what what's lovely about this is that he chooses. Because after all, romance is simply the literal level of the poem, mm. the superstructure, the, the substructure in which everything is built. But he chooses that, I mean, partly, of course, because it, it brings readers in. Readers mm-hmm. love romance. They love castles and knights and wizards and dragons. Who doesn't, you know? <laughs> but he chooses, um, he chooses a, a narrative form in which you get the most polarised and most neurotically polarised kind of gender distinctions. Mm-hmm. The big Neurotic butch knight on the... Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And, the, and the, the fainting, helpless... Fragile. Fragile, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. exactly. 
You, you get that in Gothic fiction too, don't you, to some extent? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Just talked about it. Oh, really? <laughs> 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 so, yes. uh, yeah, exactly. It's Threatened femininity, you know. Yeah. Based, I think, a lot on these um, yeah, psychological elements. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he's doing that for a much deeper strategy of showing how we need to reconcile these parts of ourselves, yeah. bring them together for psychic health. Mm. So in a sense, he's talking about salvation, yeah, sure. But on one level, this is also a sort of psychic mm. salvation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, psychological salvation. Psychological salvation. How do we, how do we become a whole being? Yes. A whole person. It's not just yeah. faith, but yeah. also yeah, becoming this narcissist. Because if you're just a bloke, you're going to be an idiot, you're driven by a prick, you're always falling into the trap, you know. Mm. You, you take the honey and the trap closes on you, boom. <laughs> <laughs> and people read this and think, oh, this is Spencer just following convention, following archetype, but actually it's much bigger than yeah, it's, that's you know, right. To learn from it, yes. to put it together, and that's the problem with dipping in and out and reading it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. So while Red Cross, he meets Joessa, and and they get on. We talked about Una, who is now alone. And she meets the Abessa or Abessa, and as we sort of alluded to before, Kirk um, Rapine. That means it means. Basically, Kirk is church and Rapine is theft. Mm. <laughs> so he robs church. <laughs> and he comes at the night, the lion destroys him. Instead, the meaning of that, I suppose, really is that this kind of blind, and associated with Catholicism, this kind of blind, this superstitious mm. set of beliefs which really have nothing to do with Christianity. They could, they could attach to any kind of belief system. Um, rob the church of its kind of true meaning and purpose. It's just, you know, somewhere you go on Sunday mornings, to show off your frock. And if you don't, you get um, a fine. You do, yeah. yes, exactly. So there wasn't a lot like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. So yeah, so uh, the lion the lion kills Kirk Rapine. <laughs> <laughs> Rips him limb from limb, um, and uh, then Archimago suddenly reappears. And yes, disguised as, disguised as Red Cross. Uh, yeah, sorry, yeah, disguised yes. as Red Cross now. Yeah. They, they go off together, Yuna is very relieved. And then they meet Sans Lloyd again. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they sort of start the battle, but then he realises that um, under Red Cross's visor is actually Archimago and their friends, doesn't. And then Sans Lloyd kills the lion, yes. and Una now is stuck with Sans Lloyd. And uh, where did Archimago go and all of that? She just disappears. Oh, I think again. he just nicks off. Yeah, yeah, so this is kind of the point. It's this dream world, and there's no explanation. Like, no. Also, he's a kind of spare wheel now, isn't he? True. <laughs> <laughs> just drives the plot. <laughs> That's right. And, and Una is all alone. And yes, and of course, Sans Loy is, is, is a representation of, 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 of um, Red Cross's lust, mm. essentially. Because the, the law restrains you. Yeah, he has a go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and then me, Aunt Dresser and Red Cross come to the House of Pride. They do, yes. <laughs> Which is a fascinating. It's, it's, it, in fact, it's an emblem. This, it's a very visual poem, this. And it, this is partly because. It's based on a kind of literature which is visual and meant for illiterate people, essentially. So there were things called emblem books, which were... Um, an emblem was a, a memorable representation of some moral idea or sometimes just, you know, prudential idea uh, or even just a, an idea that was memorable because it was odd, it was weird, and encapsulated the idea without actually having to express it. So there's... Um, an emblem of a skull with 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 uh, a candle on its head, still lit, and wheat growing out of its eye sockets. Okay. Mm. And <laughs> you interpret that. You have to interpret it just like the poem. You've got to think, oh, it's weird. What does that mean? Yeah. Mm. yeah they all work 
Yeah, exactly. So basically this means that death is coming. Oh, he's got wings. Oh, sorry, I mentioned okay, the skull wings. has wings. Important. That's why you remember... Well, obviously I forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> so life is very vulnerable. It's like a candle flame, a candle in the wind. Okay. Thank you, Alton John. Um, death is flapping towards you all the while. Mm-hmm. Bad, you agree. But out of death cometh life because there's corn going out of its eye sockets. And that life is the promise of new life. In salvation. Yes, exactly. Jeepers. Exactly. So that's a whole kind of, you know, little poem about death in an image, in a visual image. Mm-hmm. And so the House of Pride is this emblematic presentation of the different sins, as we see. Yeah. So you've got Lucifera, who again is a woman, and people tend to read a patriarchal <laughs> version of. Um, sitting on a throne, and she has a dragon. She has a dragon. Yeah, she rides a dragon. That's yes. right. And she the dragon of up? sin. Oh well, it's a dragon under a throne. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Under a throne, yes. Yes. <laughs> it's her footstool. Yeah. Um, I mean, dragon. A dragon fits footstool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they come in, and then we get—it's it, not a mask; it's a parade. It's a, it's a parade. Well, they—they they all. First of all, they come in, and you know, she's very snooty, of course, as she would be, because she's pride. Mm-hmm. She's Lucifera, which means the feminine form of Lucifer. Mm-hmm. Prince of. My cat's called Lucifer. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, excellent, excellent. <laughs> um, you know, I, went, went, I once went to a conference where this woman was talking very learnedly about Spencer, but she talked about Lucifer all throughout, which means she hadn't heard the music of the poem oh. at all. So I've been very lucky that I've had Peter basically <laughs> read me the poem. <laughs> it's a giant four year long bedtime story. <laughs> That's right. um, yeah, That's yeah right. you're right, a lot of it is in sound that people. Yeah. Sound. Yeah, but the music is seductive, and if you don't get the music, mm. you know. Lucifera. <laughs> Lucifera, who is, who, is, who is beautiful and so on. And, of course, a dangerous figure. She's a queen. She's, she's also rather cruel. She has a dungeon where she tortures people, you know. So it almost looks like a reflection on Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, 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 <laughs> And he's kind of squints at it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There are other reflections of Elizabeth, of course, elsewhere. Mm. Um, very many, in fact. Half the women in the poem are Elizabeth <laughs> yeah, in one way or another. <laughs> so she's pride. And the pride, of course, is the, the central of the seven deadly sins because what it pride... It was the first sin. It was the first sin, exactly. It was the primal sin. Because what pride means is a rejection of God's moral law. It's an assertion of autonomy. I don't need your, your stinking rules. I can do very well myself, thank you. Mm-hmm. You didn't create me. I created myself. Which is what we're doing at this podcast related to the university. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you think about it. Yeah. We'll make our own rules, thank you very Exactly, much. exactly, exactly. And then all the other six deadly sins, and they're called deadly sins because, of course, they kill the soul. You're damned if you... Now, it's very interesting, part of what we were saying earlier about the way he sort of melds Protestant and Catholic belief, mm-hmm. that Protestant doesn't talk about deadly sins, uh, because all sin is deadly. Mm-hmm. Catholicism distinguishes mortal sin, which kills the soul, um, if, you don't, if, you deny, if you die un, unrepentant. Mm-hmm. So that's what you know, all the people in the Inferno have died, have committed mortal sin. From venial sin, which is bad, you know, naughty, mm-hmm. don't do it, but if you die with venial sins unrepented, you'll just get a few thousand years of torture in purgatory. You know, you, <laughs> you won't get the, the forever of yeah. hell. You know. But Protestants didn't make the distinction. So all sin was bad. All sin was bad. Yes, exactly. Mass murder. You know, road rage. 
road rage, picking a flower on a Sunday when you're not supposed to work. All equally bad. <laughs> because the highest human good is as nothing, an infinite scale where God's in the other end. So Albert Schweitzer or, you know, Adolf Hitler, it's all the same to God. <laughs> so you can see why Spencer might have seen the Catholic system as a little more nuanced and interesting and subtle, subtle. <laughs> relevant, <laughs> relevant helpful. Yeah. that's right yeah. uh, now I talk about emblems obviously sins were very often represented as emblems mm -hmm. and people think that it's you know um, anti-feminism to put Lucifer as a female the truth is that typical emblems represented every sin as female. Every mm -hmm. single sin. Gluttony, avarice. That's true. <laughs> yes. As he only represents one sin. Six of them are men, mm -hmm. and one is a woman. Mm. <laughs> She's in charge, though. Yes. She's... Well, which, you know, I think is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so he has then this fascinating parade of the seven ladies. They go out hunting, basically. Mm -hmm. And, each, and this is what I mean by saying that the poem is highly emblematic. In fact, that's why I started on that, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Um, because what you're given is not an abstract discussion of gluttony, for example, but you're given merely a description of what gluttony looks like when you look analytically from without at it mm. as an emblem. And, of course, sin is always a distortion of ordinary human. So the, the sins themselves are grotesque. Gluttony has a sort of huge, a huge fat body and a long, thin neck. <laughs> the idea being that you taste it all the way down, you see. Oh, crazy. It, but it suggests obsession. So all the sins have a typical animal, gluttony obviously on a pig, you know, mm -hmm. and there's no, no real invention there. Mm -hmm. They're all diseased in one way because sin is a form of disease. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a form of self, you know. They're, 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 self itself. Yeah. Mm, well, yeah. that's right. And also self perpetuating. The more yeah. you sin, the blinder you get, the blinder you get, the more you sin. Mm. It's a sort of vicious loop. Yeah, essentially. Horrible of sin. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. So, and they're all diseased, as I say, deformed. You, you read one of these and you learn a lot about you know, the, the theological notion of what, what it means. Mm. Much more, and of course, it's more meaningful in a sense because you've worked it out for yourself from the, the actual description. That's, that's part of the education. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And, and then the next level is that you have to recognize the sin when it's not in that easy identifiable yeah. emblematic that's right. You meet error, but then you meet Alchemago and you yeah. mess it up twice. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's theory and practice. Mm. In theory, we can all do this stuff. No worries. In practice. That's it. And, and Red Cross is excellent at theory. Yes. Struggles with the pattern of practice. Exactly. <laughs> Which is how he's ended up in the House of Pride. Exactly. Like in the middle of it all. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Now, um, he, has a, he has a battle here with Sam's joy. Joy. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> which is important, isn't it? Because being cut off from faith, you're kind of cut off from sort of life-giving joy. Mm. You suffer melancholy. You mm. suffer depression. So he has to battle with depression. And this is foreshadowing. <laughs> yes. What is that to come? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, and then, if I'm not missing anything out, the dwarf yep. discovers the dungeon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So he realises that he's probably destined, you know, for, for, for Luciferous watches mm -hmm. so he flees the castle mm -hmm. now it's very interesting because the dwarf represents ratio lower human reason yeah. and this is one one reason to turn away from hell and catholic writers call this there are two there are two motives that make you turn away from sin and back to god mm -hmm. one of them is called contrition which is the good one mm -hmm. 
that's when you feel a genuine sorrow and remorse, a loathing of sin, a desire to, to, to return to God. Mm-hmm. The other is called attrition, and that simply means a rational fear of being toasted forever, you know, mm. and <laughs> having burning things shove up your bum and all that kind of stuff. That is a motive. It's just not, it's not a spiritual motive. It's a prudential, rational. And that's the dwarf running away. Yeah, because yeah. even, even a dog can run away from punishment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a dog doesn't have a higher reason, but it has lower reason. So he runs away. So, so there's nothing spiritually improving about this. He no. hasn't learned anything. Even though he's seen the parade of sin, yeah. he just says, yes, that's what yeah. he's saying. Yeah, Thank you. yeah. and, and you know, he looks at them and he thinks, oh, it's actually, it's, it's, it's wonderful when he's there because there's a moment where he's looking at Lucifer being proud and he's kind of outraged how proud she is that she won't take notice of an important person like himself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Him failing the practice. That's right. Exactly. exactly. In the moment. Exactly. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> yes. So he rushes off, uh, and he encounters Lucifera, uh, uh, Duessa, sorry, Duessa, Duessa, yeah. Duessa, in in a pleasant place, which is called called a locus aminus. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be locus l o u l o c u s aminus, if you want to be fancy, a m o e n u s, but sometimes spelt just with an e, as in the word amenity, okay. amenity, yeah. and this is a traditional rhetorical. Topos, topos meaning a common place. It's a pleasant place, a garden, fountains, birds, very nice. But of course, morally always dangerous. Yeah. Partly because, of course, of the archetypal locus aminus, which is the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. And partly because it's a place where you are likely to be off your guard. Mm. And we see this all the time. Knights take off their armour. Yes. And then, <laughs> and then in comes trouble. Yeah, you're not vigilant in the locus aminus. Mm. Much better to be given a bed of nails. Mm, yes. yes. <laughs> You're awake. <laughs> You're awake. <laughs> That's right. So Nobody's going to sneak up on you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and with Duessa, this is exactly the point. He takes off his armour. Takes off his armour. He feels, you know, relaxed. And Duessa and, and Red Cross get it on. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they but do. they drink from the Fountain of Sloth, don't yes. they? Yes. Oh, there's an elaborate story about the Fountain of Sloth. Hippolytus is involved. Sort of. Yeah. Well, look, it's, it's really about a nymph. It's derived, it's a, it's a modification of a story in Ovid about a nymph who doesn't want to join in the race because she's got a lover. That's right. And the, the hunt, I should say, not the well, race. So Diana, so Diana turns her into a fountain. <laughs> that as, as you do, yes, exactly. <laughs> so sloth here. Sloth, of course, is one of the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't mean laziness. It means because you, you can be lazy but very much busier than the affairs of this world. I mean, mammon, for example, mm. is an example of sloth. Mm. What it actually means is spiritual sloth, or accedia, as it's called. Mm. Uh, you just don't give a toss about you know, the destiny of your soul anymore. You know, just, who cares? You know, I'll just fornicate and make money. And, you know. Eat cake. Eat cake. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's really uh, partly what it's all about, I suppose, in a way. But also what happens in the fountain is that she's joined with her lover in a curious way um, together and the effect of this is curiously to emasculate him. Mm -hmm. So he's weak, he's no longer... He hasn't got his armour on. So he can't deal with what's about to happen. And this is the the 
your autism associated with a pompe fatale, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. that's right, exactly, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, she overmasters him. Yeah, and, and not by any kind of sublime powers, harkening back to our discussion of Sophia and other Gothic women, um, but, you know, just through appealing to his sexuality. <laughs> exactly. And here, here Spencer's drawing upon an ancient, ancient idea which you find everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> which is that love in general and sex in particular emasculates the warrior. That's right. Because, and it, they, 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 for them there was a biological explanation. Mm -hmm. Because you know, as a as a, as a chap, mm -hmm. you're born with a specific quantum of male spirit, mm -hmm. chi energy, you know, some nonsense notion like that. Uh, instead of you know, as we know, the testicles are constantly producing sperm at a at a terrifying rate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they thought you just were born with just a lump of the stuff. You, know, <laughs> you or, had ten. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So every ejaculation weakens you, it takes away energy and power and spirit and resolve and forcefulness. Shakespeare talks about this, doesn't he? Yeah. He, he? He does. I don't know whether Shakespeare takes it quite seriously, but, he, <laughs> but he, he, it's an idea that's self... Um, well, in fact, at the beginning of Antony and Cleopatra, people accuse Antony of being, you know, somehow sucked mm. in, so to speak, like so this. Yep. Yes, and therefore emasculated as a warrior. Mm. But in fact, Antony shows this is completely wrong. This is just a ridiculous old wives' tale, because what Antony is actually doing, and this is what actually makes Shakespeare so interesting, also with, as with Spencer, is that he's finding new ways of being male, not the old Roman, again mm. highly bifurcated, gendered way, where to be a woman in Rome you either have to sort of fade into the wallpaper, mm. or become a substitute man like um, like Antony's wife, mm. but rather to become a more complex person who is both male and female much as Cleopatra does too so again you're playing with so it's, it's, it's very interesting that same idea should be in Spencer and in Shakespeare mm. at the same time. Incidentally if you're looking for a reason for that and I don't know this is pure speculation but it may be that you know they've just had a 45 year reign of this extraordinary competent capable woman who has just you know the uh, kicked the ass of every, every man in town yes basically <laughs> and established this very kind of capable capable role. intelligent you know she spoke like cleopatra she spoke you know, half a dozen languages she could she could deal with ambassadors and she she was extra and very skillful and very you know strategic mm. And then you, you, know, you get the dills following her who sort of spend all the money and go into the useless wars and end up in the yeah. Civil War yeah. because they're just, they're idiots. <laughs> driven by their pride, their dick. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, that's Spencer right. is seeing what's going on in society. So, exactly. Problems. So that idea, I think, it was the time for that idea to become, you know, reasonable. Mm. <laughs> I think that maybe this kind of rigid bifurcation of gender roles doesn't make a lot of sense. Even back then, and this, we're always saying this to students, like you can't just immediately say, ah, oh, patriarchy, yeah. um, they were patriarchal, the representation of women was bad because of the time. Like, it's always more nuanced. And always. People are able to recognise this. Exactly so. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even Milton. <laughs> Even Milton. <laughs> well, that's right. That's yeah. right. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so, they're having it away. They're having it away. And, and, and it's, it's, it's wonderfully described. They sort of melt. In, you know, it's... It, it, He's described as being poured out in looseness on the grassy ground. It's like in a dream where your muscles don't work and you know, you're faced with a danger and you can't run away or you can't fight it. Yeah. Because you know, he's attacked by the giant, Orgolio. 
That's right, immediately. Yeah, Imme- immediately, yes. It, it happens as a consequence. Yeah. yeah. Alagolia, of course, means pride, but a different sort of notion of pride. From, um, this is more like pride of the flesh. Okay. You know. Yeah, that's right. And he has his giant club. He has his giant club, yes. Um, big knobbly club. Big knobbly club. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he is a giant. Yeah, he's a giant, but he's an inflated giant. Yeah. He's all puffed up. <laughs> and Agolio throws him in a dungeon. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because remember, pride puffeth up, Corinthians, yes. And meanwhile, uh, Una's having a good time. Yeah, well, she meets the forms who chase off. Now, th- th- this happens, incidentally, at the same point in Canto 6 and 7, which is Stanza 7. Can you talk about that? The... What do you call it? Why, I, I'm... No, you have... Entre you mean? No, no, no. no um... Well, the, the fa- shape of the poem, the, sh- the numbering, and the oh, I see. Oh, oh topomorphic patterning. <laughs> yeah, we should. We should. Go for it, <laughs> well, yes. Um, Spencer believes he believes, going back to Pythagoras, that the universe is built on numbers. That God talks the language of numbers, mm. which was which is actually good contemporary science because Galileo himself says the university is the university. The universe is. <laughs> <laughs> is written in the language of mathematics, mm-hmm. which of course is true. Mm-hmm. You know, mathematics is weirdly predictive. You know, they discovered imaginary numbers back in the 15th century. Wow. Yeah. But they, they were you totally... Use- something. <laughs> <laughs> but t- they were totally useless until, I think, the early 20th century when they suddenly... You know, you can't now make transistors or things where imaginary numbers... Oh. So they were always going to be useful. It's just nobody knew what use they were in the 15th century. <laughs> it's very clever. Yeah. That's the same as all the astronomy they did, all the maths. That's yeah. why it's only became all useful that. maths exactly. recently. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, basically, well, yeah, the point is uh, Kepler will get you to the planets, most of them. <laughs> uh, even, even Mercury. Mercury's, Mercury's orbit is slightly off because of general relativity because it's so close to the mass of the sun that in fact it doesn't obey purely Newtonian but in fact it's something like one forty second of a second of arc mm. distance out which isn't a lot mm. you know it's enough to make a difference but a very slight difference so your rocket will still get there <laughs> it'll land just over there instead of there you know yeah so yeah Kepler's Kepler's discoveries about the movement of the planets are, are still perfectly valid mm. and yet Kepler also believed in you know he believed that the planets were separated by platonic solids or imaginary platonic solids and so <laughs> <laughs> he's both a scientist and a mystic or a magician yeah. and that's true of so many early modern scientists it's fascinating Paracelsus yeah Paracelsus yeah, yeah. yeah I mean Galileo is the first one I suppose who doesn't have that because even Copernicus mm. Copernicus you know had a brilliant idea about the heliocentric solar system but he still believed that orbits must be circular because that's the perfect platonic shape mm-hmm. and of course they're not they're elliptical as Kepler discovered there we go yeah and, and Spencer knew all this didn't he Spencer he, knew all he, this he, well he, he, he knew his he knew his stuff so we understood that like um, yeah some truths might seem mystical but they're often yeah revelatory in some other way yes yeah. exactly Exactly. exactly. We were talking about Una, weren't we? We were. Oh, yeah. Topomorphic oh, yeah. patterning. Topomorphic patterning. Well, oh. he places these two incidents. Uh, the, the worst incident is that Sansloy's rape of Una is driven off by the forms mm-hmm. who rush in, and inadvertently perhaps, but 
Safer. And at the same position in the following book, we have um, we have uh, Red, Red, Red Cross's Cross. attempted rogering of <laughs> Duesther. I think it's fulfilled, isn't it? Well, and then he's interrupted. It's mid Roger. Okay, mid Roger. Whether he's reached the moment of truth, <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. Okay. <laughs> but that's interrupted too by an intervention. Yeah. So they're wow. similar. And you look at the language, and the language has echo echoes. You know, the mm. word, word echoes and bellowing and woods and, and ringing. There's a whole bunch of verbal echoes that tell you to connect these two. Mm. And, and what it is, in fact, is the same situation seen from two quite distinct points of view. So it's an act of fornication which is interrupted by some intervention. Mm. And for the soul, you know, the conscience... This is a blessed thing. This is a deliverance. Divine this is, intervention. Yes. Yeah. For the will, mm -hmm. who's looking forward to the whole thing, <laughs> it's a frustrating yeah. um, defeat. But it's the same thing. Yeah. Exactly. And 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 just making us, you know, see that we are divided selves in mm. this sense that we're not just the will, that we are will and conscience and grace. Very cool. Yes. <laughs> the fawns then. She has an interesting relationship with fawns. Yes, the fawns. Well, the fawns fawn on her. Yes. They, they kiss Again, her. Punning. <laughs> yes, exactly. They, yeah. they kiss her feet and they worship her. And they try to make her a goddess and she says, no, 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 I'm not the goddess. So then they worship her ass. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe her ass. The donkey. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like um, they will worship anything. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Because, they're, because they're primitive, yeah. superstitious. And we see different versions of yeah this type of being throughout the poem. It's we do because it's contemporary with obviously the discovery of the Americans just discovery. <laughs> exactly. And, and Spencer is dealing with this as well, and and you get the Montaigne version, right? The, yes. But then you also get the kind of like benevolent woodwoe. <laughs> That's right, the savage man or the salvage man. That's it. Yeah. Who. You know, he's he's got he's got a medieval version, which is basically human beings still in a state of you know primitive development, not yet achieving society, if you like. So, having all the virtues of that, which are strength and endurance, and, you know, but also not having learned about, you know, not having been told that rape is not a good thing. Yes. You know, <laughs> living by kind of natural law, like animals. Yeah. But then you've also got the the, the good savage men who because they haven't been because so in, in a weirdly Rousseau-esque way in, yeah, nature, yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> exactly they are they have a kind of natural goodness yeah but we don't find one of those in well the fawns kind of are fawns are kind of yeah, the fawns are kind of her, but it's not because of natural goodness it's just like oh you're there and your heart will take you home you will worship you exactly or would you mind yes exactly <laughs> um, yeah so and then this is him introducing an emblem which he then builds on Yes. Yeah. is part of his way of providing commentary. Exactly, yes. exactly. And then Saturate comes in, who we find out is the, the son of a, a fawn and a knight. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. So he's halfway between the, the, the two. Yes, that's it. exactly. And, and he rescues her and she sort of tells him her whole story. And then a pilgrim comes along and tells them that Red Cross is dead. Right. So the pilgrim is... Is Archimago. Archimago. And so she's quite sad. And, and that's kind of, that's the halfway point in the poem, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Oh, in the canto. In the canto, in the canto, that's right. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then the dwarf turns up, because the dwarf has seen the whole battle. He's seen Red Cross taken by Orgolio. He's ringing the bell. <laughs> He's ringing, yes, right. 
And he, now what he, he explains to, to Una what's been going on. Mm-hmm. And this is very much a sort of idea of confession. Yeah. Confession. Reason confesses to the soul. What, Una? Una, yeah. yes. What's actually happened, you know, is he was, he was having it away with this woman and this giant came along and dragged him off. And he's imprisoned in the dungeons, mm-hmm. which is a sort of spiritual, spiritual. imprisonment. Yeah. Yes, that's right, that's right. Uh, and so Una's very upset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she rushes off and, and bumps into Arthur by chance. And Arthur, now Arthur, we haven't mentioned Arthur. Arthur is, is, is the character who links all the books together because he tends to appear when he's needed. Just when he's needed, yes. yeah. He's Nanny McPhee. <laughs> so he's not yet King Arthur, of course. He's mm-hmm. Prince Arthur. So Another kind of errant knight. Yes, who's also le- on learning. He's learning yeah. on the job. Yeah. He's not yet the perfect King Arthur. Yeah. Uh, and he engages, he comes in to sort of help out, like Batman, he comes in to help out. <laughs> they put the light on. <laughs> That's right, yes. Yeah. Arthur, you're needed. Um, about the midway point. When, when, when the, uh, the hero, and there, there are sort of six heroes yep. of the six first books, each of them represents one of these virtues, and when they get in real trouble, Arthur comes in to rescue them. Back up. Back, you back up, yes, exactly. <laughs> the American army. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So Arthur rides off to Orgolio's castle mm-hmm. with Duessa and the dwarf. And it's quite interesting because it's set up, again, this is clearly an allegorical situation. And this time it's anagogical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because he blows a trumpet in front of the gates. And, of course, that's like the last trump, the yep. last trumpet, the ju- last judgment, final judgment. Revelations. Revelations. Out comes Orgolio and Duessa. And Duessa, of course, is riding on her seven-headed beast, as you do. Yes. I have one. Have you? <laughs> do you have a license for it, though? <laughs> <laughs> I don't need one. <laughs> I need to wear rats. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, the seven-headed beast, of course, is in Revelations, and it was interpreted by Protestant readers as referring to Rome with its mm-hmm. seven hills and there, there are lots of lovely illustrations of the seven headed beast artists have a great time with it pretty medieval artists in yeah. particular <laughs> <laughs> and she, she rides this beast it's a good battle beast I suppose because it can bite seven people at once and, yeah. you know whatever uh, and she's carrying a cup which is full of the, the filthiness of her fornications whatever that means uh, I, I don't like to inquire what that means <laughs> But that phrase is from Revelations. But obviously what it represents is the Catholic, Catholic magical abuse of the Eucharist. Yeah. The, the Eucharist cup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which she uses in a magic way to sprinkle on people to, to make them weak and helplessly she does out with, 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 with Arthur. But it doesn't work on Arthur. <laughs> it doesn't work on Arthur because of what we find out later well, his whole backstory in a few books. Oh, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah. We, yes we better defer that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, so they're fighting in the battle uh, at one point sometimes these battles are quite protracted (laughs) (laughs) at one point he's he's got a veil over his shield but the veil slips off and his shield suddenly shines brightly Mm. it's an image of grace and again it's the intervention of grace yes exactly the last judgement exactly and and that's what defeats Orgolio rather than any actual kind of battle yes exactly Probably should also mention how in some battles the knights sort of just become one, like a rough and tumble, like the cartoon we talked about. Yeah. It's just owl bump, you know. Yes. Whereas in other battles, there's a very clear distinction between those two. They're exactly right. Uh, well, I'll give you an example. Um, in 
one of his one of Red Cross's early battles is Sans Lawyer. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, with Sans Lawyer in particular, they described as two rutting bulls. That's it. So <laughs> bashing their heads. So they're on the same level. They're yeah. morally equivalent. You know, even you though they're on different sides. Yeah, yeah. And, and because they're both driven by lust and, and not by anything higher. Yeah. Um, he does it by his use of pronouns, like he, 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 he. Yes. But it's so many, and uh, you don't know who is you, who. You is get he. very confused. Exactly. <laughs> it's quite deliberate. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah part of the poetry of it. Yeah. Yeah. That brings us to sort of halfway. Thank you for listening to the first part of our discussion on the Fairy Queen. Obviously, we've only covered some introductory material and and the first half of Book One. So next time we'll look at the second half, and I'll be joined again by Dr. Peter Groves. Peter has also kindly shared with me a, a graphic that was drawn by a student some time ago that depicts the rise and fall and of the action of Book One of the Fairy Queen. So we're going to pop that up with the podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll, we'll be putting the Monk uh, episode up shortly. It's not far away, but we'll keep getting to it. Thank you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.